Welcome to Veterans Radio Hour on VBN Veterans Broadcast Network with host General David Grange and co-host Ranger Doug. Here's Ranger Doug. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to our 22nd program. This is the seventh program in our series, Russia Moves Into Ukraine. You're joining us again on the Veterans Radio Hour 2.0, hosted by Brigadier General Retired David Grange. I'm Ranger Doug. We have with us tonight wonderful guests, all of whom have been with us before. I will tell you their names, and then they will give a short bio of themselves. Brian Downing, Dave Johnson, and Mark Mitchell. Brian, would you please give a a short background sketch? Brian Downing here. I uh, did three years in the Army in the early 70s. When I got out at the age of 20, I had one year in Vietnam behind me, a Corvette Stingray in my driveway, and the GI Bill. So I went to Georgetown Foreign Service undergraduate, University of Chicago for graduate work. Since then, I've been pretty much an independent security analyst. Thank you, Brian. Mark Mitchell, would you please introduce yourself? Good evening, Ranger Doug and uh, General Grange. And um, thanks for having me on again. I, I spent uh, 28 years in the army as an infantry and special forces officer uh, retired in 2015 and came back in 2017 as the acting assistant secretary of defense for special operations and low intensity conflict and uh have, you know been a uh, involved in all kinds of uh security and uh national defense issues since then thanks Thank you, Mark. And Dave Johnson, would you please introduce yourself? Yeah, hi. I'm uh, the executive director of C4ADS, the Center for Advanced Defense Studies. Uh, we leverage unique technology, uh, talented analysts, and uh, available open data and publicly available information to target illicit networks uh, uh, around the world. And uh, I went to West Point, class of 84 was in the infantry and special forces for 23 years, uh, retired in 2006. Uh, I was uh, an army strategist, uh, did my uh, master's in strategy at uh, the Sorbonne, and have worked in artificial intelligence on my PhD projects. So thank you very much. Back to you. Très bien. Merci beaucoup. Tonight we'll be discussing, of course, the war in Ukraine, and we also are going from complete open source, although all of us have backgrounds in security and clearances and such. We will not be discussing anything that comes from any secret references or anything else. This is all available to the public in open source. General, over to you. Thank you, Ranger Doug. Uh, Appreciate the intro, and thank you to all our guests tonight, uh, Mark, Brian, Dave, and of course, Ranger Doug. We're hitting Russia moves into Ukraine again because it's a significant issue, obviously, right now in everybody's mind, front and center. This episode, we're going to talk about second, third order effects of the war in Ukraine. We hit a few topics that we didn't discuss in detail last time. Hopefully, we can cover those, but some other items may come up from the discussion that will be of interest to everyone. And these are tied to some questions and comments that came in from our audience about our show. On a Veterans Radio Hour. 
So on a second third effects, as an example, the alignment of Russians' allies, they don't have many, or they're not talked about in, in detail. We have Chechnya, we have Syria, we have Libya, possibly India to some degree. And you remember, some of the allies may not be direct, but they may be involved indirectly in support of Russia due to equipment or money or whatever the case may be. The other is, what about Belarus? Belarus has been a launching point for some Russian units. The uh, leader of Belarus is tied to the leader of Russia in many ways. And geographically, of course, they're north of Kiev in, in a strategic location. Third, what about China? China's strategy as they watch closely to the war in Ukraine, a Russian, Russia's success and defeats, how they operate, how they're supported, how the world has reacted to Russia's aggression. And China carefully is looking at that. And we'd like to discuss, discuss that somewhat as well. And then reshaping self-sufficiency in one's own, own nation to allow you to have the influence or positional advantage you would like geopolitically or in direct combat, whatever the case may be in the future, or fuel reserves, access to rare earth elements for our, our development and manufacturing of certain items that we need in the civilian and the military markets, food supplies. Some countries are feeling that already from the results of the combat to date. Availability of medicines, especially those from the critical supply or shortage list that became apparent, became apparent with the recent pandemic. Uh, those type of uh, self-sufficient items that you depend on another country for that may then not allow you to make the decision that you would like to make and commit the way you would like to commit. So we're looking at these second and third order effects, and those four I mentioned are just examples that we may touch on tonight. There may be others. So looking at that right now, I'd like to ask Brian, and I'm asking Brian first because he made some very good comments last week in Belarus. And what what is Belarus going to do going forward? You said they had a, a weak army, untrained, but they're still geopolitically uh, aligned with Russia and ge their geography is critical to Russia's launch and, and some of their fights. So Brian, over to you on the alignment of Russia's allies, in this case, way ahead for Belarus. A couple of years ago, Belarus was uh, straddling Russia and the United States. It inked a deal with Secretary of State Pompeo to buy natural gas from the United States, which, of course, uh, would be was a shocking thing to Russia, which thinks of itself as the supplier in chief of all Europe of gas. Uh, well, then two years ago, there was uh, a rigged election in Belarus and uh, a popular protest, popular uprising close to, and uh, Lukashenko, the strongman of Belarus, had to sidle up to Vladimir Putin to get uh, backing and muscle. <clears throat> so Belarus is now presently very much in the Russian camp. And uh, Belarus has been used as a staging area for the attacks on Kiev. Uh, then they're retreating. Belarus is very unlikely to get involved in the fighting. The army is small. It is overwhelmingly conscript. The conscripts have a period of 18-month uh, service. Uh, you're not going to have much of an army if that's your, your uh, 
you were set up there. Uh, there was a report today from Lukashenko that Belarus's special forces performed some operation in Ukraine. I don't know what it is. I don't know that it really happened, but uh, we'll just have to keep our ears open for something like that. If Belarus were to get involved, I think it would suffer very heavy casualties, and I think it would suffer a great deal of uh, discontent in the ranks, and that that could further destabilize the whole country. So I don't think uh, Putin or Lukashenko is going to get involved with that. I see Belarus as on the sidelines and with a war shifting to the east. Uh, I think it'll be even less important in the war. For now, I think long run, months, years to come, Putin is going to try to take Kiev again someday. But for now, Belarus is back on the sidelines. Thank you, Brian. So NATO just kind of puts Belarus's influence to the side. They're not that concerned about Belarus. Is that correct? Probably. They might have some idea of fomenting unrest inside Belarus. Uh, I hope so. I would certainly advocate it. But I don't see any, uh, I don't see Belarus factoring into the straight military situation right now. On allies of, of Russia, we really kind of, you hear in the news, uh, reporting on battalions of Chesnians, you hear uh, volunteers from Syria, some maybe that small amounts that have, uh, that have actually deployed, some that have not, but just talked about it, same in, in Libya. Uh, I, I like to, I like to shift to, to Mark and ask Mark, do these Besides just the name and, and chatter, is there anything significant at all about these forces from these countries I just mentioned as allies to Russia? Do they make a difference? Is Russia just really scraping to get allies that they can, they can uh, showcase? What's the status of these allies? Uh, sure. Thanks. That's a great question. And my personal belief, we need to um, differentiate between allies and partners and typically you know, when we talk about allies, we're talking about a treaty alliance and obligations. And I think it's significant that Russia no longer has any real allies in the sense of treaty obligations, um, much like China. They don't have, you know, other countries that are willing, they've committed to providing these uh, forces to them. And what we see with Chechnya Syria, Libya. Honestly, I think their positions on Ukraine and, and frankly, their contributions are overall inconsequential to the United States, NATO and the, and the rest of the world, because they don't, you know, for the, for, for the first part is that these countries are, if not in great turmoil uh, themselves, I mean, you, you know, Chechnya, it's a question, I think, of opinion, what their domestic status is. But certainly Syria and Libya have tremendous domestic um, challenges and they don't have a unified government. They can't really add anything. And so in, in, in the big scheme of things, I think their positions um, are, are, are really inconsequential. Um, again, because Russia does not have treaty allies who are willing to uh, support them. And on the issue of Belarus, um, their, their military contributions uh, are inconsequential. But I think politically, uh, geostrategically, 
they have hitched their wagon um, irrevocably to the outcome of this conflict for Vladimir Putin. And as we saw in Congress today, with the revocation of uh, most favored nation, uh, trade status that's you know will undoubtedly be signed by the president. It um, they're going to suffer the same economic consequences as Russia, even if they're not going to suffer the same military consequences. So, um, from you know from a big picture, I think Russia doesn't have a lot of support left. Over. Very good comments, Mark. I wonder if designation, the, the words, how you explain the partnerships versus uh, allies. You know, people are piling on from NATO. Different countries are piling on supporting Ukraine. Who then is actually supporting, if anybody, a Russia on this aggressive act of war on Ukraine? Who is supporting them? General, from the strategic perspective, I don't think any anybody has said we support uh, Russia's actions. I mean, save for the uh, the Russian Orthodox uh, patriarch, um, you know, of the Russian Orthodox Church. But external to Russia, whether India or China um, or any other nation of consequence, nobody has supported them. Although I would say that um, both for India and China, their attempts at straddling. Um, and maintaining a degree of neutrality are important factors for the um, the larger um, strategic situation. You know, India, given their population, their economy, and their aspirations, uh, the fact that they have not come out strongly to condemn Russia. I, I think is important. And in fact, almost more important, I mean, China's um, China's non-condemnation can be explained um, largely by their concerns over Taiwan. But India is a different story. And I think it's important um, to keep that in mind. You know, India abstained in a vote on the UN Human Rights Council uh, last month. And they have they've tried to walk this uh, fine line. And I think it, it's largely tied to their previous positions during the Cold War with the non-aligned movement. And they are now looking to reestablish some sort of independent position vis-a-vis uh, -vis the bipolar uh, conflict between Russia and the West, or even China, uh, with this their non-aligned position. But I think it's going to be complicated um, extremely by their own rivalry with an increasingly aggressive and assertive, economically vibrant China. And so, uh, again, Russia does not have any active supporters. But the fact that India and China have stayed on the sidelines and tried to play um, to adopt a position of neutrality, I think, is uh, important in a long term strategic consequences for this conflict. Over.
Yeah, Mark, I appreciate your comments on both China and India and how the war affects everybody economically. Some are being very coy about about commitments or what their position is. Uh, it kind of leads into, I'd like to ask a question about China's strategy a little bit as a result of the Ukrainian war. I'd like to turn to Dave Johnson on this. And, and what, what do you think China has, what has China got out of this war? What, what is it going to, how is it going to affect their future strategy, let's say Taiwan or just its position, uh, besides economically, its position of strength in the world? How does this affect them? So, so China has a positive approach through things like Belt and Road and other things to gaining control of global resources. Uh, they usually take a very, very long picture of things. Uh, the Chinese Communist Party itself, you could think of as, a, as the government of China, and there are factions within it, including uh, Xi Jinping's faction that's in, you know, in charge, so to speak. Um, just because you have a monarchy or an auto, uh, autocratic government doesn't mean you don't have politics. But external to China, the goal is, I think, to continue to move along the path of gaining control or access to the world's resources as they see themselves growing into the future. And so that's things like um, what's going to happen in Siberia, what's going to happen if, if, if Russia is, if this continues for a while and Russia is significantly weakened, then it's permanently probably driven into the sphere of uh, influence of China and all of those resources and all the access to those resources then become much uh, more readily available to China. Uh, on the other hand, if Russia were to become a dominant power, then I think we've seen um, Samantha Power and some others talk about you know, having a, a tripartite balance of power uh, and that kind of thing. So I think it's in China's interest, and China will probably see it the same, as not necessarily committing to fully support the Russians but allowing this to play out. Uh, and as it plays out, even, you know, as we pointed out about uh, in the past, about all of the losses of, uh, that have gone on already for the Russians in this space and leadership and, and assets, uh, other resources, I think it's pretty clear that uh, for China to kind of stay on the fence, so to speak, as much as it can, while at the same time not allowing the West to completely dominate the situation and then pull Russia into its sphere afterwards. And I think that's going to affect a lot of secondary players out there like India and others. You know, there's a, a th international relations theory that talks about states being balance of power states or bandwagon states. Bandwagon states glue themselves to the strongest guy around and, and balance of power states, whoever becomes most powerful, they, they line up in opposition to. Uh, Post-World War II, the, the French had a very close relationship with the Russians because they wanted to kind of play us off against each other. It was uh, de Gaulle who said, you know, if you can't do great things, you can jouer en grand politique, you know, play, play grand politics. Uh, and so I think that a lot of nations in the world are waiting, are, are sitting on the fence and waiting. And even though they may condemn Russia now, uh, should the balance of power shift too far in the direction of, you know, the United States or someone else, they would put themselves kind of in opposition on some issues uh, because Russia is now a weaker player, uh, you know, to rebuild the balance of power out there. So I, like I, I said earlier, I think the Chinese are looking long-term geostrategically. Uh, and for them, that play, as it is in Taiwan, as it is in the South and East China Seas, it's about resources and access to resources. Uh, so they have a very proactive strategy, not one of 
prevent the rise of a pure power in Asia or Europe and, and allow the free flow of trade. Theirs is much more proactive about gaining control or access to global resources. I, I also had one other thing to say about secondary about secondary impacts. And because I, I live in a world that is, you know, peacetime where states aren't the agents, but illicit, globalized illicit networks are. And that includes, you know, factions within governments. And so when I look at the world through that lens, one of the things that ha- has, has happened is that Russia has had to call back some of its influence agents out there, like, like the Wagner Group. Uh, which were heavily involved in training and, and working with other potential allies in Syria and Africa and exporting weapons and, and, and dealing with uh, private uh, military corporations like Wagner. Uh, all of those assets have had to come back to Russia, so to speak. So it's now got a lot less influence in those spaces outside of Russia, in those, in those places in uh, Latin America, Africa, and the Middle East uh, than it had in the past. You're listening to Veterans Radio Hour. We'll be right back. As Father Time fades into the sunset, as the dramatic events of 1942 pass into history, baby 1943 topples into the scene to take on a man-sized job, the job of winning this war. The management of this theater pledges that we will keep the planes flying, the guns booming, and old glory waving. For this theater is an American institution. Thanks for your support and patronage during 1942. We'll help morale on the home front with better entertainment in 1943. Let's all of us get behind our boys. Let's build, 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 and make this a victorious 1943. Roses are red. Violets are blue. You want your disability claim? Get VDAC. End of story. Go to nifv.org. My father was the, the best truck driver I've ever known in my life. Like a family tradition. I'm a truck driver myself. I drove around the states with my cat. To be the truck driver, you not just only see where you go, you see the world in the larger perspective. This is a really good time to be in the trucking industry. The dispatchers get good loads for them. The equipment is very new, and then it's very reliable. At GTS Transportation, we make dreams come true by employing truck drivers, dispatchers, mechanics, and many other occupations. Consider joining our rapidly expanding team where we put quality, human dignity, and respect back into the workforce. Contact us by visiting our website at gtscarrier.com or call us at 847-754-4667. That number again, 847-754-4667. Dallas Corporation and Dallas Logistics, a proud supporter of the Veterans Broadcast Network for over 19 years. High quality printing services and warehouse distribution has been our hallmark since 1985, serving Fortune 100 companies for over 35 years. Check us out at www.dallascorp.com. Welcome back to Veterans Radio Hour. And here's your host, General Grange. On those comments, uh, and a lot of them, you, you're talking at the geopolitical level, and you're talking about resources, and then I like to transition into that question with Ranger Doug. And the, the question is that uh, in a situation like this, where you're who you 
tag onto, who you speak out against, uh, partner with, whatever the case may be, using uh, uh, some of Mark's, Mark's uh, uh, comments on partnership versus, versus uh, uh, ally. Uh, Ranger Doug, how is how is this going to affect going forward? And, and, and I think economically, we haven't had the brunt of the results yet. The, the second, third effects, whether it comes to f- fuel or food or whatever. How is this going to affect going forward? Can can uh, does Russia have what they need to prosecute a war? Does the United States is it going to feel some pain? I think if the United States was fighting China right now, and as an example, instead of Ukraine fighting Russia. And they pulled the plug on certain things. We'd be and we'd have a hard time uh, resourcing ourselves to fight a war. Uh, what about self-sufficiency in 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 war like this? With what's going on as an example with Ukraine and Russia? Please give us your comments on that, Ranger Doug. As you've uh, recognized and Mark described, uh, an alliance is a formal agreement, generally done in the open. Although an alliance could be kept secret, but yes, there's a partnering going on and. It was mentioned earlier by uh, Dave Johnson about the Belt and Road Initiative, where China has vertically and horizontally integrated itself into most countries through loans and other things to build the uh, an actual road that they expect will go all the way from China to England and then this maritime belt that will link other countries not contiguous to Asia. Gets back to the idea of Halford Mackinder that whoever controls Western Europe controls the world island, that being Eurasia, but who controls the world island controls uh, all of the world. And China is rapidly trying to do that by partnerships, which I've called a consortium with Iran, Pakistan, North Korea. It's developed now influence in India, which is traditionally an enemy, but India has felt the need to cozy up to uh, uh, China for the purpose of trying to gain uh, access to energy and other things that it has to have since we no longer produce it. And that's brought them into work again with Russia since a lot of their systems dating back from years ago are still Russian-based. Meanwhile, Russia is creating systems, but it really doesn't have the ability to field them because it's kind of capital starved. The technology they, they produce, they sell to China. China then markets this capability around the world, counterfeiting Russian and counterfeiting U.S. technologies. But they've also taken over several sectors of the United States that make it so we can't be self-sufficient. Our building industry, concrete, medicines, uh, car parts, chips uh, of a lower nature than those that are made in Taiwan. And that's the big problem. The major market uh, developer of chips for the world that are of the technology to support the capability of, say, an Apple computer are maintained in Taiwan. And that capability is under duress if Taiwan is taken. So the world is very concerned about that. If the Chinese succeed in taking Taiwan, uh, we have a big problem. Now, it's beginning to look to me, and I said last time, I thought there might be some peace discussions within 30 days. China is actively, I think, promoting the war and uh, it wants to see this war go on as long as possible to try and exhaust the world into looking at its own economy uh, as a way forward. The Chinese, the Russians, and certain others have now developed a replacement financial system that is operating on the course of maybe tens of thousands of trans, uh, transfers, money transfers a week, where in uh, the SWIFT system that's been used to transfer credits in the United in the world and includes the United States up to now, it's it's multi millions of transfers in the same period of time. So they're it dwarfs what they're doing, but they're attempting to bring it on. And the Chinese have, in addition, an economic problem at home, but they have the ability to muster reserves of gold. And of course, they do make now fabulous armaments. They're even heavily involved in Central and South America. So for us, we've got to start thinking in terms of what they used to teach in terms of the elements of national power. 
for the United States to remain strong, then it has to develop those elements, which are production, banking, commerce, communications, including road networks, railways, and so forth. And we've got to think in terms of what are the strategic and operational materials that we've got to have from other sources or from internal sources so that we can, over a period of time, dislocate our economy from China and once again become not only a marketer of services, but a producer of goods at market prices that the rest of the world can afford as they begin to pull away from China. Meanwhile, we need to avoid a shooting confrontation over Taiwan, which the Chinese probably will afford us the opportunity because they'll likely, after seeing what happened to Russia, think again about going amphibious and trying to invade. But they will press Taiwan and they will press the Straits in order to ensure that that choke point is under duress to the rest of the world. Our things, though, need to concern such things as nails, armaments, and so forth that we don't need to have made in China anymore. And we also need to work on our internal stability as much as we can. Back to you, General. Thank you, Ranger Doug. And I, and I think that this is, um, I mean, you can't, you can't fight without the logistics and you, and you can't, you can't fight unless you have the, the resources you need on a continuous basis and, and, t- and take care of your own. If you're fighting, for instance, in a force projected way overseas, you still have to maintain your security and, and, and your protection, of course, of, of your, of your homeland and your people. I think uh, not being able to uh, provide our own fuel, if that's the case, rare earth elements, if that's the case, uh, actual pharmaceutical ingredients and raw materials for, for critical drugs, that's the case. Uh, you know, the, the Chinese did this to Japan about the South China Sea, reference rare earth elements, REE. It does affect your ability to prosecute war. Now, you mentioned you know, one of your last comments, Ranger Doug, you mentioned uh, Taiwan. And you, and you mentioned the, the Chinese, of course. And I would like to do, do one thing. I'm going to turn this, turn this part of the show over to uh, the panel to have a discussion going back and forth. I'm going to ask Ranger Doug when needed to, to moderate uh, due to the fact of a uh, 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 mission requirement. But here's, here's one thing I'd like to start off with. If you now focus back down, and let's this, this get into more specifics. For instance, Chinese watching... Okay, on the southern flank, Russia, do they attack from the sea? Odessa, as an example, with a combined or joint operation, air and sea and land. Are they, I would think that the Chinese would be extremely interested in the outcome of that. Uh, do some of these uh, surface to ship missile, missile firings that will probably happen in an attack on Odessa from the sea? Uh, some of the aviation issues with air assault operations, etc. It's almost this kind of the same set that China is planning in Taiwan if they ever, in fact, decide to do so. So I'm sure they're very curious at how, at the operational level, not the strategic level, but the operational level, how that'll turn out. So I'd like the panel just to discuss that a little bit because I believe personally that the attack from the east and to continue from Aeropole and then moving, let's say, further to the west, those attacks will happen. And they'll happen a week or two after refit of Russian forces. And by the way, and, and, and if I'm wrong, I'd love for someone just to bring this up if that's the case. I believe that this is these are better forces that are going to be in this next wave of attacks than at the beginning of the attacks. These are better trained with, with, uh, with a combined arms army on the east, and with uh, air, land, and sea forces well-trained from the south. So I'd like to throw that over to, to start that off, I like, because 
I know last show, Brian talked about this a little bit in the South. Let's start that discussion at the operational level. And then, Ranger Doug, please moderate as we go forward. So to you, Brian, to kick that off on what I just said, a China watching Russia on this possible attack. Uh, thank you. I do think that uh, an attack on Odessa is coming. I do not see it imminent. I think the Russians will be a little too busy in the east for that. I think they're losing ground around Herson just to the east of Odessa. So I don't see that as imminent. Uh, a, re- a related thing is that uh, the British are providing Ukraine with harpoon ship-killing missiles. I'm seeing some report that they're arriving in Odessa now. Those, I think, could just devastate any sort of large ships that uh, Russia would bring within, what, a 40, 50-mile radius of Odessa. And, of course, they've been using anti-tank missiles to hit smaller patrol boats around there. China is undoubtedly watching that. uh, And they would have to worry about the ship-killing missiles. I think that would be key to the defense of Taiwan. Uh, The analogy I like to bring up is an old one to the Battle of Okinawa, where the United States had several hundred ships around Okinawa for a long period, and they took a beating. I believe about 250 American ships were sunk or badly damaged at that battle. Uh, China couldn't handle that. Now, of course, air defenses are superior, and of course, nobody's going to be using kamikazes on uh, the Russian or Chinese fleets. But, uh, yeah, I look to the Battle of Okinawa that it, would, it looks to be too painful for China to undertake right now, in large part because of adequate defenses on Taiwan, but also these ship-killing missiles. The, the United States has a uh, weapon, the C-RAM, against it. I don't know if it's ever been used in combat, and I don't know if China has ever developed one. That's a great comment, series of comments, Brian. Uh, and I would like to then pass the floor to Mark to echo uh, some thoughts on those comments. Over to you, Mark. Uh, thank you, Ranger Doug. Um, I am going to respectfully disagree with General Grange uh, regarding the quality of the Russian troops. I don't doubt that a an assault on Odessa is coming in the near future, um, but what i do doubt is that the quality of the russian troops and the tactical level um coordination will be any better than what we have seen um here to you know uh, to date the the russian forces are the russian forces they have i i don't believe they've kept in in reserve a highly trained highly competent force they committed what they had and and what we're seeing on the ground in uh, you know in the tactical level effects is the results of a russian force that is mainly conscripts that does not have uh, a a great logistics training and is not well versed in the integration of all the elements of combat power. And on the second uh, effect of that, you know, talking about the missiles and the defenses, what I think the Ukrainians have made great use of is not only unmanned aerial vehicles, but, you know, the Bayraktar, um, 
uh, unmanned aerial vehicle uh, that's of Turkish origin, but now we're seeing the the use of these um, loitering munitions, and those um, I think are posing a a huge uh, both tactical operational and strategic threat to the Russian forces. And the Ukrainians have managed to use them um, at night under limited visibility um, to inflict damage on Russian forces. And some of these, you know, these uh, drones, these unmanned um, loitering munitions that can hang out for up to two hours, um, can be used against um, maritime operations. And so I think it's only up to the, the creativity of the Ukrainian forces. And, I, and you have to believe that the, uh, the communist uh, Chinese are looking at this and going, wow, there's a, a tremendous um, capability, not only for you know, high-speed anti-ship missiles, but again, simply these loitering missiles that can wait for a, a troop landing ship uh, to come within range and and create a devastating, even if it doesn't sink a ship, to strike the deck of a ship, create a fire, a hazard, um, is tremendously disruptive to... A, a a maritime operation and i i think it doesn't bode very well um for russian forces as they uh, as they move forward over thank you mark dave over to you so i would agree with mark no matter how much new equipment or training you give the russian forces their military culture is designed uh for a very different approach Ours is more complicated. As Patton said, you grab them by the nose, kick them in the tail. Theirs has always been to, you know, reinforce success, go from column to, to line. Uh, and it's easier to control. And they do that because it's easier to control. And here we are talking about a maritime operation, which is literally the most complex possible operation you can conduct with joint forces. Uh, so... Even if they hit very hard during daylight with air and long-range missiles, they will do lots of damage, etc. But the chances they're going to damage themselves more is extremely high, because I, you know, these are not easy operations to accomplish. Certainly, China will be watching, uh, and so will we, uh, because um, you know, without patting the, the the Marine Corps on the back any more than they actually need, uh, the um, you know, our force that does this sort of thing is extremely well-trained ta- well and coordinated uh, and, and has done lots and lots of practice exercises. Uh, and, I, you know, in none of my research, you know, I, obviously I haven't done a whole great bunch on uh, Russian maritime exercises, but I don't think that they've had the time or the training to actually pull off something as complicated as, as, as a maritime assault on Odessa. More likely they would, uh, you know, use standoff capabilities from the sea and from the air and then take it from land, you know, uh, if they're not going to do a maritime operation. Because if I were them, I'd avoid a, a, an amphibious assault of any kind. 
uh, given what they've got. So that's kind of where I am. I'm, I'm in agreement with Mark. Thank you, Dave. Those were great comments. Uh, in previous programs, I've uh, pointed out that, yes, the amphibious operation is extremely complicated. And in fact, by the time we hit D-Day, June 6, 1944, we had made hundreds of, of landings uh, in the Pacific and elsewhere that had been done under fire, some not under fire, but we developed new technologies, new tactics, techniques, procedures, operations, and we uh, became very capable. Uh, at Inchon, for example, we took advantage of a tidal bore and sneaked in, but the actual opposed invasion at, at uh, Normandy went, went very well overall. No one is practicing those kinds of operations right now. These operations that Russia conducted in, in preparation for the invasion were just movement of forces. They didn't involve tactics, and they still have nothing higher than senior privates responding to junior officers in their units with no initiative. And apparently, in their logistics system, they may have great equipment, but you know you have to, after a while, change tires and change even road wheels on tanks because the rubber begins to rot after a while. Well, it appears that their supply system breaks down because people steal the supplies and nobody bothers to change the wheels on a regular basis. And so in many cases, it's been found that their equipment broke down because simple things like fan belts, tires, road wheels on tanks failed when the tank itself or the, or the truck or whatever was made very well. This may also account for one of the reasons they're not flying a lot of their airplanes. Plus, they also know that the Ukrainians have capable systems to oppose those airplanes. And then you throw in the fact they have precision missiles now, even hypersonics that they've used. There isn't much of a need to employ uh, aircraft uh, in a direct role, but aircraft carrying long-range missiles are a great option. They can stand off and not get shot down. Um, to Brian's comment about Okinawa, yes, it's true. And in fact, uh, that's why these suicide drones and certain of the missiles that are out there are, are very, very important. And the Chinese, I think, unlike the Russians, have the ability not only to learn from their own mistakes, but they will, they will study history, they will study operational art, and they've developed their own answer to our uh, multi-domain operations. And they have command structures and everything. They also have a lesson learned system. They drill and they're ruthless on their people regarding how they work uh, with uh, uh, these new technologies, where the Russians will develop a technology by copying it, but necessarily don't copy the doctrine. So in many cases, they don't have an ability to use the equipment with the effectiveness that someone else that has a better system. So for example, the Chinese could borrow or copy or, or, or buy a Russian system and do much better with it. The Chinese also will not make this problem of logistics a major one because they will ruthlessly ensure that pilferage and theft does not occur and anyone caught doing it will likely end up in uh, something like a gulag, but possibly even uh, put to death for, for thievery. So they'll have good control of that. The Chinese are also busy synchronizing their operations at the operational level. They're much better than the Russians, I think, at, at learning and applying those lessons. And if you go back to the famous work by the two Chinese colonels in 98, uh, Kao Liang and Wei Zhengxi, the Chinese have a full complement of unconventional operations that they're busy running around the world to support their regular military operations, making Sun Tzu's maximum uh, to know your enemy and know yourself. You need not fear the outcome of a thousand battles. And also, first win the war, then begin fighting, meaning organize everything for victory before you even fire the first shot. And many times, the war you fight will be short. They did not demonstrate that in Vietnam. They did not demonstrate that in a number of things they've done. But we're hopeful that uh, they will 
not have the kind of success that, that, that they expect to have because, of course, no plan survives first contact with the enemy. The one thing we have to worry about in the Taiwan situation is not only do they have short-range missiles that will kill or disable ships, they have actual ICBMs with multiple warheads, the DF-21, DF-26, that can range thousands of kilometers, possibly even as far as Norfolk itself, to hit a fleet that would launch to oppose them if something was done. But look for them in Taiwan to probably take an unconventional approach as well. Uh, what I'd like to do now is take a break for a commercial, and we'll return in a couple of minutes. Thank you. Kind of lonesome. Yes, but I'm awfully glad he did. Enroll in Navy Officer Candidate School, you mean? Yes, OCS. Lots of liberties? Oh, yes. Good food? The best. Education and training? Mm-hmm. Best thing he could have done. Enroll in Navy Officer Candidate School, you mean? Yes, OCS. Kind of lonesome. Yes, but I'm awfully glad he did. You're listening to Veterans Radio Hour. We'll be right back. I hit the ground, bang, bang. That awful sound, bang, bang. My baby shut me down. The trucking industry was born by the military during World War I and therefore became the father of the trucking industry. Being a truck driver achieved national attention in the 1960s when songs and movies included truck driving as a part of the storyline. If you're looking for an easy job that pays well, then GTS Transportation is looking for you. GTS Transportation is a leading transportation company with a great history. We are an international company with opportunities all around the world. Apply now by going to our website, gtscarrier.com. Or call us at 847-754-4667. That number again, 847-754-4667. Apply now and become a part of truck driving history. VDAC, an online application that helps veterans research and file for their VA disabilities. Empowering the veteran to take full control of your claim. Find out more by going to our website, nifv.org, and clicking on the VDAC button. Once again, our website is nifv.org, and click on VDAC. Dallas Corporation and Dallas Logistics, a proud supporter of the Veterans Broadcast Network for over 19 years. High-quality printing services and warehouse distribution has been our hallmark since 1985, serving Fortune 100 companies for over 35 years. Check us out at www.dallascorp.com. Welcome back. And here's Ranger Doug. Welcome back from the break, ladies and gentlemen. This is Veterans Radio Hour 2.0. This is our 22nd program, and this is the seventh in the series, Russia Moves Into Ukraine. And tonight we're discussing a number of topics. And we did in the earlier part of the program uh, listen to Brian uh, point out some things about Belarus. I would like to ask Mark uh, Mitchell if you have anything to add uh, in regards to the way ahead for Belarus. 
Hi, Ranger Doug. Thanks very much for that question. Again, I think that the Belarus is not a a military factor here, uh, other than providing basing and operation logistical support for Russian forces uh, in northern and western Ukraine. Um, but I, I, their you know their their military, as some of the other uh, guests have noted, is poorly equipped and. Um, not very well trained, but I think it's uh, it's important to note that aside from that, that base of operations and the ability to pose a threat to northern and western uh, Ukraine um, and, and basing Russian forces um, is a significant factor, and it has to be accounted for in the strategic calculus not only of the Ukrainian government, but also of the NATO partners and allies. Um, as, as much as it seems inconceivable at this point, you simply cannot rule out the fact, uh, the possibility that Russia would uh, use Belarus as a base for other aggression. Um, Again, seems seems unlikely, but not something I would want to rule out completely. Over. Thank you, Mark. Great comments. Uh, I think you're I think you're dead on the money. I do believe, though, that uh, Belarus provides not only an operational route into uh, Ukraine, but operating on interior lines is a big advantage. The Russians may also be able to conceal the movement of certain forces, uh, and. Uh, they may actually be able to strike from different directions uh, using distance as a factor for air assault and fires from within uh, Belarus eventually. Uh, as well, Belarus is one of those countries that we talked about in earlier programs that uh, actually Mr. Putin wants to knit back together in those countries that he considers to be the ones that represent the old Kevin Rus, the people that came from the, down the Volga from, from Scandinavia that, that became those that we eventually call the Russians. And that would include parts of Moldova, Ukraine, uh, Romania, and uh, obviously Belarus and in certain other territories. And then there also is that factor that during the course of the Soviet Union, uh, the leaders were homogenizing their country by taking Russians and sending them all over. So there are enclaves that are close to Russia in many countries, such as Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, and all of those countries are greatly afraid right now that eventually, uh, if Putin succeeds here, he will want to uh, uh, come take those uh, areas or at least incorporate them in something like was done originally with uh, the uh, Luhansk, Donetsk, Crimea, Georgia, and other places. Um, so let's think about then uh, another point we talked about. What are the second and third order effects of the war in Ukraine in regards to uh, situations in the world. And I'll pass that to you, Brian. Well, we are seeing the strengthening of NATO, uh, not merely in the resolve of current members, but also in the uh, admission of perhaps Finland in the next few weeks. That would add 500 miles of unfriendly border 
to Russian strategic thinkers. I mean, it's always been unfriendly since the war of 1939, but now it will have uh, NATO membership. There may be NATO maneuvers there. Uh, it has to be considered by strategic thinkers in Russia and China as ruinous, a complete disaster. And um, you really have to think that these people are going to have to wonder if Putin is the ideal leader there. That's many weeks or months off, but I really think Putin has made such a strategic blunder here that his position will be uh, undermined in coming months. Uh, as China is concerned, I think China is probably pretty annoyed by this war. Uh, Putin, their key ally in the Eurasian landmass, has shown abysmal judgment about uh, his military prospects in Ukraine and the response of the NATO partners in the whole world. You're seeing uh, Eastern, the East Asian area becoming more unified against China. Back to you, Andrew Doug. Thank you very much, Brian. Great comments. Mark, over to you on that one. Thanks for drug and uh, thanks, Brian. I, I think Brian's uh, very um, accurate in his assessment of Chinese regrets for aligning themselves with the um, the Russian uh, position on this, and you know the phrase that comes to mind is uh, with uh, partners like these. Um, I I think uh, at a at a at a different level though strategically, um, it's important for us to remember that. The, the use of sanctions, which the United States and our Western European allies and even our, our Asian uh, allies and partners, Australia, Japan, etc., have used is, is fundamentally dependent upon the U.S. dollar as the world's reserve currency. And I think many uh, Americans and many of our uh, partners and allies underappreciate the consequence of that and the impacts. And I, I, I frequently offer to people a, a counterfactual um, where China and the Yuan are the world's reserve currency and you know, controlled by the Communist Chinese Party, and we are unable to uh, impose the sanctions that we, um, that we and other countries have imposed on Russia. And I, I think it's, um, it's very easy to take that for granted, um, but our, our power economically is fundamentally and inextricably intertwined with the role of the dollar as the, you know, the reserve currency. And in a, in a the Chinese have made, um, I, I think, you know, going back to your comments about unrestricted warfare, the Chinese have made explicit their desire to displace the dollar as the world's reserve currency. And 
for us as Americans and our our allies, our treaty allies and partners around the world should recognize the consequences if we if the dollar is displaced and the Chinese are successful in doing that. And in this case, instead of us, the United States imposing sanctions on Russian companies and or threatening sanctions on Chinese companies that do business with them, we in the United States and corporations based here would be potentially threatened with sanctions for not doing business uh, with China or Russia. Um, and it, it's, it's hard to imagine, but what did we say about 9-11? It was a failure of imagination. And if you can't um, imagine a situation like that, you're not gonna be able to prevent it. And so um, again, on the larger strategic picture of uh, lessons learned from this conflict, we need to, um, as Americans and our, with our partners, consider what can we do to strengthen the position of the dollar as the world's reserve currency to insulate ourselves from reliance on countries like Russia for energy and countries like China for manufacturing. And, um, and again, going back to the co earlier comments about COVID, uh, with medications and medical supplies. Um, I think it's a huge strategic question. So, uh, and, and lastly, are, are international corporations uh, willing, you know, what risks are they willing to accept in dealing with China and how do we respond to that? So um, there's definitely lots of second and third order effects out of this conflict, over. Thanks, Mark. That was great. And I talked earlier about the SWIFT system and how it was being used, but your comment on uh, the world currency status is really a big one. And the thing that is an advantage for any country when dealing with the United States is that up until now, a contract was a contract. And uh, in China, not so much. Plus, they float their currency. But the Chinese and the Russians are working now to get their currency into payment for many things that they want during this period. For example, the Russians are now beginning to charge Europe rubles. Uh, or they want their payment in rubles for the gas and other things that they sell. Uh, the Chinese also have been building this idea of a digital currency, and they may be the first to arrive at one. And of course, they would like to then get that digital yuan or renminbi to become the world currency. And Lord knows if they could deprive countries of an ability to spend money because they could freeze your accounts. The other thing that seems to be a, a case now is that by doing what we've done with these sanctions, uh, we've operated in ways that some in the world are characterizing characterizing as a real first. In other words, the Germans have uh, uh, remarked and others that uh, even during World War II, no one froze Hitler's accounts. Those contracts that were in place for various supplies and such were allowed to work. The idea that we would, that would freeze an account of a country at war simply for that is something new, but it, it, it seems to follow the course of uh, what we call cancel culture in civil affairs, in civil society affairs, in other words. Uh, so the second and third order effects of this uh, war, I think, uh, are going to be very surprising to people. And of course, we don't understand uh, how serious that this will be, even in the United States. We haven't seen that much right now. Gas where I live has risen probably a buck and a quarter a gallon. 
uh, that's doable for a while. If it jumps three times its current price, people will begin to go a little nutty. And as we know, that that frog cooking analogy or Harry Truman's analogy that uh, Americans are funny, you scare them, they'll go crazy. You don't scare them, they go fishing. I, I'm not sure if it came through in the audio earlier, but I did mention that the Chinese are operating on on that idea of Sun Tzu's, that you organize everything to win. Uh, first win the war, then begin fighting and also knowing your enemy and knowing yourself. In other words, your enemy's strengths and weaknesses and how to program your strengths against those weaknesses enables you to win. In other words, know your enemy, know yourself. You need not fear the outcome of a thousand battles. They also have integrated themselves into many countries, not only through the Belt and Road, but by traditional spying techniques. And those involve aspects of what our our intelligence community regards as the acronym MICE-CR, standing for money, ideology, compromise, ego, coercion, and revenge. And uh, there's plenty of that to go around. And if you examine almost any influence operation, it contains one or more elements of those, as well as any compromise action directed against anyone. So uh, in that when we send people to China or people go to China for business reasons, they generally come back and through some means have been compromised by photographs, videos, payments of money or other activities that eventually meet them when some agent says, hey, we know you did so-and-so when going to China. This is one of the reasons why we've got to pull back some of our strategic assets and begin to manufacture them here, certain technologies, and even things that aren't necessarily technical, but are very important, like medicines, uh, computer parts, and so forth. I'd like to turn our attention to closing comments by each of our participants, as well as I will ask for a kind of projection over the next week or weeks as to what we may see. First, I would like to direct that to Brian Downing. Go ahead, Brian. Well, I'd like to make a half-hearted comment about the status of the Russian army. We have seen them uh, as incredibly inept, incompetent, disorganized so far. There's a possibility, only a possibility, that they've learned something in the last four or five weeks. That is that uh, maybe the frontline armor and infantry units have uh, coalesced into effective combat units that they've had casualties, they've had uh, disciplinary troubles, sure, but now there is a core of effective fighters. Um, Maybe logistics have improved in the last few weeks. Maybe they've uh, figured out how to get things done. Uh, Maybe some of these generals who have been killed have been replaced by more competent ones. And... uh, Maybe at the tactical level, some of these armor commanders realize you just can't send four or five armor vehicles out and expect them uh, to return. You have to have infantry support. You have to have, hopefully, a little air support as well. So maybe the Russian army is going to be a little better in the, in the coming weeks. My, my gut says, no, it's not going to be. But there is this possibility, and I think we should uh, bear that in mind looking forward. Back to you, Ranger Doug. Thank you, Brian. And in addition to that, then, do you have anything to project as far as what we may see in the coming week? Over to you. I expect to see uh, the moves in the east. I think we might see a pincer movement coming from the north at out of uh, Izium and out of the south from Donetsk. Uh, it could, it could, if it's done right, uh, entrap a lot of Ukrainian troops in an eastern pocket or force them to scurry west. 
Uh, I imagine this sort of idea appeals to someone like Putin and some of the generals who are eager for a stunning victory that will reverse their fortunes, uh, reverse the tides of war, and possibly uh, you know, put things on a better uh, course for them. I don't think they can do it. I don't think they have the troops, the discipline, the weapons, the skill. And uh, remember that the Ukrainians have learned something too, and they're sending experienced, confident troops off to the east. Back to you, Ranger Doug. Thank you, Brian. Great comments, as usual. Mark, over to you for a closing comment and any observations you might make regarding what we may see in the next week or weeks. Uh, thanks, Ranger Doug. I, you know, and I think Brian's, you know, is right in in pointing out at least the possibility that the Russian forces um, could have learned some lessons from the the failures recently. Um, I, I do, however, share Brian's uh, pessimism that the Russian forces are going to make a uh, a significant turnaround um, based on those lessons learned. I think what we're going to see in the in the coming weeks is a continuation of the um, the punishment. Uh, kind of approach to it, and I, you know, I think it's important to recognize that uh, Russia has always relied on mass firepower and artillery for support of their military operations on the ground, and the, the consequence is that it causes tremendous casualties, and. I think, uh, you know, there's a, again, this is me, just uh, my own personal opinion. I do think that that approach has uh, second, third order effects with Russian armed forces where, and we've seen a lack of respect uh, about non-combatant casualties. And I think over the coming weeks, it's going to be worse and um, we're going to see Russia rely more on indiscriminate uh, firepower and in, in attempt to consolidate their gains in particularly in Eastern Ukraine. One of the things I would tell you is that um, I do think they're going to have a hard time establishing firm control uh, for the long term. They can establish short term control, but it they will see the same types of challenges uh, in Eastern Ukraine that they have seen now in, in, around Kiev and other major cities. Um, and I think to the extent that Ukrainian forces can uh, consolidate and maintain that pressure, that we'll see continuing um, uh, casualties amongst the, uh, the Russian armed forces. I, I think the last thing I would say is, you know, we talked earlier a little bit about the, uh, the Chinese and their, their long-term perspective on this. And, you know, they said they don't want to see a crisis in Ukraine. I, I think it's uh, radically self-serving. The Chinese recognize uh, that they don't want, they don't want to be in a similar position as Russia with all the economic sanctions, 
uh, if and when they do decide to um, uh, invade Taiwan. And I think, honestly, my perspective, it's a matter of if, not when, and or, or when, not if, um, the Chinese will decide to do that. And so anyway, I think over the next week, we're going to see that uh, increasing consolidation, but continued Russian casualties um, at, at similar levels to what we've seen elsewhere. Thank you, Mark. Great comments. I would like to follow up with something on, on the same issues. I uh, have said over a number of earlier programs on this subject that I believe that the Russians could have used uh, an initial force composition with conscripts and others to simply go in and conduct the operation because they've made the agreement with China to follow on the heels of the Olympics, which they've done uh, on a number of occasions. They've, they've gone after other countries either during or after the Olympics. But in this case, they ran into something which characterizes all fighting in that part of the world. Napoleon learned it. Hitler learned it, that you not only have to fight the host population, but you have to fight General Winter and General Mudd. So they've committed these forces during a muddy period with bad logistics, possibly not good training. And they lack one thing that made them, well, two things that made them powerful in World War II. They were so aroused after their losses to the Germans that they actually brought a, a fury from the nation uh, that, that allowed them to do amazing things, although much of what they did was uh, very brutal, not, not Patton-style tactics, although they had a few that were very good but they'd killed most of their good generals in the purges before the war. And then they also had that problem that everyone faces, General Winter, General Mudd, and uh, uh, they themselves got a little admired in it, but it certainly did destroy the Germans. In this case, I believe they conducted reconnaissance, they put in units, they did some initial combat. They do have better forces available, but they haven't been employed yet. And the question is, will they employ them or will... Mr. Putin reached his culminating point at some time because of world politics or otherwise. And I think really we have to watch the Chinese because I think in, in this fight, more than others we've seen, Russia is their proxy. And Russia is actually doing the fighting now for both of them because they concluded an agreement some time ago. And I think they're operating on that agreement now. Also, I think that we will uh, potentially see a new kind of amphibious operation that might be a surprise in the sense that if they felt they could do it in the Black Sea, rather than trying to physically land on the shore, there is that new concept of, of uh, amphibious operations that would involve a vertical envelopment or the use of helicopters and other kinds of, of uh, aircraft that could land troops beyond the beach and they could be joined there by an armored column that might fight its way through in better weather. Uh, possibly also other forces from elsewhere. And there's always this concept that they have of the Wagners or the Little Green Men appearing to set up beachheads and stuff for or LZs, landing zones for these troops. And they might be able to do something and thus avoid close-in engagement by the smaller missiles that the Ukrainians may have. It, it all goes back to what was said earlier by colleagues. It depends on whether the Russians have the ability to learn in this environment and then apply those lessons. Now, here's the real problem they have. The reason they had such power was not just the national arousal in World War II caused by what the Germans did. It was also the fact that in order to get units to move, they had a whole political structure in every uh, large and small unit that consisted of commissars and deputies that actually would shoot commanders and others who didn't perform. So all soldiers, all leaders performed under duress. Uh, they don't have that here. 
And now they have senior privates coached by junior officers, all of whom are very inexperienced. They may have some experience in Syria, possibly Chechnya. Most of them won't have fought in Afghanistan. So they have no real entrepreneurializing capability like our soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines, Coast Guards do. Uh, those people all have the ability to take common principles, a shared understanding of what's to come, an American style of warfare that's become quite uh, prosperous recently. And, and in this fight and in these fights in these later years, we haven't been like we were in World War I, borrowing someone else's equipment or in World War II, having equipment that was numerous, but not as high quality or high lethality as the Germans. So I have a feeling we're going to see some kind of change but I do believe at some point this war becomes too costly for the Chinese, depending on the world situation, and we may see them in some way coax the Russians to a table. There are already peace discussions going on in Israel and uh, in Turkey, who's supplying both sides with weapons and capabilities, so the Turks are, are making out well. Uh, at the same time, uh, I would like to say we'll be back again next week. Uh, General Grange and I, and perhaps these guests and others, depending on everyone's availability, we have a wonderful team of people who are highly experienced, have a great deal of expertise in all kinds of different operations at many levels, as you've heard tonight. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. We're on 10 platforms now, including an RSS feed, Spotify, Apple, Amazon, and elsewhere. You can find us on iHeart. Uh, we're, we're not everywhere, but we're getting close. We're, we're experiencing a good number of downloads a week, uh, upwards of 100,000 depending on the program. And we'd love to hear comments from you on our website as far as things you might want to hear discussed in future programs. Remember, we're always out for our veterans, our active and, and, and guard uh, and reserve service people, and our citizens as well. Uh, we'll be back again next week with another program in the same series. We tend to cover this as long as the war uh, continues. And uh, want to thank our guests, Brian Downing, Dave Johnson, and Mark Mitchell tonight. Uh, and I would just, at this point, Brian, over to you for just a simple closing comment, if you would, please. I think we're moving into a very interesting geopolitical period where Russia, China's main Eurasian ally, could be gravely weakened militarily and politically in six months or a year or more. And that could be uh, a momentous disaster for China, which has beliefs that it can... Uh, be the dominant world power. Without Russia, a powerful, aligned Russia on its side, China is a regional power and an increasingly obnoxious and opposed one. Back to you, Ranger Doc. Thank you, Brian. And, and thank you so much for participating. Your comments, your insights, your experience are invaluable. Again, thank you for joining us. And we look to hear from you next week or weeks after. You're welcome anytime. Mark, again, thank you. And over to you for a closing comment. Uh, thanks, Roger Doug. I would echo uh, Brian's sentiment. I think this conflict, even though it's uh, limited geographically, strategically, it will have uh, implications for decades to come, uh, both for our, our you know, the U.S. NATO <clears throat> relationship, NATO's really uh, perspective on European security, and and frankly, uh, the Western democracies' perspective on the threat from Chinese Communist Party. Uh, ag aggressiveness. So the the next few weeks um, 
are incredibly important. And again, will the consequences from this conflict will redound for decades. Thanks for having me on tonight. Thanks, Mark. That's a brilliant comment. And I, I would like to close myself by saying that regardless of what the outcome is for Russia, China will have developed a plan to best use that outcome. If Russia emerges stronger, China has an ally. If Russia emerges weaker, China will simply absorb what Russia has moved back and as it is doing now to Siberia and other places. And eventually Russia will find itself uh, having to stand off against the Chinese as they encroach more and more into the Russian space. In decades to come, that may drive Russia toward the West. It may be that the Western nations, including Russia, have to figure out how they'll stand against a, a, a growing threat from China if China's threat continues to grow. There are ways that that can be halted. There are reasons that China itself may not be able to achieve its goals as it reaches a culminating point in its economy and politics uh, and any other thing. Uh, another disease emerges that's more deadly than the one that came from there recently could have major effects on on the world. And of course, we understand the Chinese are engineering new diseases that may even go after target populations. So the next decades, the next years are going to be very interesting based on what we see happening in this war. Once again, thank you for joining us on the program tonight. Don't forget to subscribe. Join us next week. Visit our website. Visit us on Facebook. Leave us a comment. We appreciate your listenership. We do everything we can to avoid partisan politics and put straight information out to you. And as you've heard tonight, there have been some disagreements, but it's, it's, it's a matter of trying to get a range of options for the audience as far as what may happen. None of us have the ability to definitely see the future. We can only predict based on trends we know and application of our experience, expertise, and education. Thank you for joining us on the Veterans Radio, our 2.0. Our topic tonight was Russia moves into Ukraine. This was the seventh in a series of the Veterans Radio Hour 2.0, our 22nd program. Good night. Ranger Dug out. Thank you for listening to Veterans Radio Hour on VBN. Bringing you shows like Wounded But Not Broken, Roll Call, and Veterans Radio Hour. This way.